You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you, Jennifer. It's my great pleasure to introduce Valeria Umanetz, who is a PhD candidate in the political science department here at UW-Madison. Her research interests include uh, women's participation and representation in politics, political behavior, political parties in the post-communist and uh, Russian region. And as you'll see, um, she's presenting part of her dissertation work, which focuses on Soviet state-sponsored feminism. It's based on archival research. And prior to joining UW-Madison, Valeria uh, completed her MPhil degree um, in comparative government at the University of Oxford. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to be presenting at Krika, where I've been uh, a, um, a, a, part, a part of the audience so many times. So uh, it's a pleasure to be on the other side. Uh, and um, I'm going to talk about part of my dissertation today. Uh, and as you can see, it's focused on uh, women's political participation in the USSR and contemporary Russia. And uh, let me start uh, my presentation from a little bit of um, motivation, where actually all that comes from. So in 2019, before the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine and before the COVID outbreak, I went uh, to Russia to do preliminary field work. I started collecting uh, some information on the useful contacts, such as uh, the contacts of um, parties uh, and uh, party members uh, within uh, Russian regions, one of which was firm. And I happened to speak to um, one of their representatives in their uh, Just Russia, um, and uh, that person was very, very unhappy with only one woman who was in their um, city, Duma. And uh, it didn't make much sense to me because he was the head of the original branch. If he has so much power over deciding who is going to be um, presenting uh, Just Russia there, or who not, um, he should be able to exclude her or at least manage it in some way. And I asked that guy, uh, so why do you have her? Um, and he responded, that's how things always are. If you have three people uh, in the list, then uh, one of them must be a woman. And I became quite confused because he was very convinced that that's how things are. And he persuaded me that the only party that doesn't do that is LDPR, the Liberal Democrats, who are the Nationalist Party. They hate women. They do not hide it. Um, but the rest of them are complying with this kind of unwritten rule. And I got curious, where does that come from? So in contemporary Russia, when I started looking into what's happening with women's representation, political participation, I was surprised to find out that there is this thing called the Eurasian Women's Forum that was happening since uh, 2015. And that was some sort of a global uh, forum that tried to unite uh, women of, of Eurasia, women leaders of Eurasia, under the guidance of, um, oops, Matvienka, who is um, the former governor of St. Petersburg and the current head of the uh, Federal Council of Russia, uh, is uh, the head of this uh, Eurasian Women's Forum, uh, which was pretty much promoting very similar agenda to what's happening with women's uh, um, uh, agencies in the Soviet Union. 
And furthermore, there were other state, uh, Soviet-like organizations uh, that I found. Uh, the Union of Women of Russia, uh, who receive uh, funding from the uh, federal budget of Russia, and which is basically claiming that they are their ancestors of their uh, Committee of Soviet Women who were established during the World War II. And uh, they even run those uh, um, organizations, uh, this organization club uh, called Dejan Sovieti, which is uh, the, uni uh, the women's councils, which were established by Khrushchev in the 1960s. And apparently they claim millions of members. Um, so observing all that, I got curious, uh, so where all that comes from? It clearly is not Putin's invention. It clearly was not uh, created today. And I, as a political scientist, came up with the question of why do authoritarian elites recruit women? What motivates them to actually have women in politics if they are so misogynist, if they are not fond of women's political engagement? And uh, my main argument that I'm going to present today and that I'm presenting in my dissertation is that both the USSR and contemporary Russia use women for um, instrumental purposes of the regime's survival. And uh, I specifically argue that women did serve and continue serving the role of transmission belts. So they uh, process the state agenda from the top to the bottom. But that was done through the system of informal quotas in the Soviet Union. And today, that is being done through the public employment. And for the Soviet period, specifically, that I'm going to talk much about today. Um, it also was related to the question of everyday politics and representatives' responsiveness. So that's basically the outline of what I'm doing. There is a Soviet part, there is a Russian part, and today we'll be focusing on the red one. Uh, for those of you who are the colorblind, it's women's representation in the USSR. And if you would have questions about contemporary Russia. I have a lot of appendix slides, so happy to walk you through that if you're interested. But let's start from where everything started. So the USSR is characterized by the 74th uh, hist year history of so-called state feminism, where the state was uh, the uh, agent who was running uh, the agenda associated with women's rights. And uh, the Soviet Union had the so-called informal quotas that were run through their communist party, and uh, their um, arguments about those uh, electoral quotas are mainly made in the context of the Western Europe, so there's enough research done in the context of specifically Russia or Ukraine. And there were multiple different women's organizations in the Soviet Union, as we know, the Janadeli, the early ones that were canceled by Stalin in 1930, then Jan that were created by Khrushchev uh, for their transmission uh, of political agenda. Um, and we also know from different Soviet uh, multimedia uh, um, pieces of information that uh, women uh, were portrayed as the integral part of the Soviet system. So they were portrayed as workers, as the Communist Party activists. So they were not excluded. They were not marginalized, at least in terms of the Soviet propaganda. And moreover, the Soviet Union used the so-called descriptive symbolic model of representation, which meant that um, the representation that they were trying to embrace was supposed to reflect how the society looks like and how it should look like. So the Soviet Union thought of 
the ideal society as the union of labor and peasants. And labor and peasants have men and women, so they should be women, also reflected in Soviet legislatures. So here's an example from the 1920s, a very uh, well-cited uh, poster and the misquote of Lenin, every kitchen maid must learn how to rule the state. <laughs> and uh, this was like a recruitment campaign for women to run uh, to the Soviet councils. Uh, and here's another example of a later poster from the 1950 during the Soviet uh, Stalin's period where uh, there is uh, an embrace of not only voting but also being elected. So that was a big part of the Soviet agenda which was pretty uh, unusual for the time for, uh, for their mid-20th century or the first half of the 20th century. Uh, but did really women like uh, enjoy all their rights and benefits uh, of uh, emancipation as the Soviet propaganda uh, says? Obviously not. We know uh, that uh, there were only two women in the Soviet Politburo throughout the entire history, Kalantai uh, and um, the Minister of Culture in the 1960s. <laughs> Furtseva, right. Uh, so, in fact, um, there was no uh, egalitarian aspect to that, right? Uh, and um, we can see that once um, Gorbachev started his electoral reforms, he removed the informal quotas that existed in the Soviet Union. So you observe their very uh, um, dramatic decline over here, which happens before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and um, this is quite remarkable. So like, if the quotas did matter, why we observe uh, this decline? If the Soviet policies were trying to actually emancipate women, why we do not see them uh, being as equally engaged as before the cancellation of quotas, right? Um, and here uh, is uh, one of their explanations. So. Uh, for uh, why uh, women uh, were engaged into what was happening in, in, uh, in through the regime, but then uh, it didn't matter. So one of the explanations that is suggested not for the Soviet Union, but for other countries that have women's quotas, uh, such as uh, Uganda, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, is the argument about international pressure. So. Uh, when in a non-democratic political regime um, embeds women's policies, they want to signal to the outside world that we are the good guys. We uh, deserve your money, we deserve your attention, we deserve your approval. So through the means of foreign investment, foreign dependence, and uh, international uh, intergovernmental shaming, uh, they uh, try to signal to the outside world that um, we actually are uh, doing the good stuff, so uh, please uh, invest into us. Then there is another mechanism which is broadly described as gender washing when um, in order to appear more democratic, uh, the state would recruit more women like Ugandan government does. They have about 65% of, 63% uh, of women in their uh, state legislature. Uh, but uh, are they actually uh, empowered? Um, no one can really tell because Uganda is a very non-democratic country. Um, and the explanation that I suggest uh, by using the Soviet and Russian case is that um, the use of women by the state 
uh, can have uh, domestic purposes as well. Um, the non-democratic political regime uh, needs uh, agents that it can use for uh, some kind of domestic purposes of uh, enabling the regime to function. Uh, and uh, this is uh, what is usually described as trans transmission belts in uh, their uh, history um, in, in, in the literature um, about the Soviet Union, uh, like historical analysis. Uh, and it's not only applied to women's organizations, it's applied to pretty much all the Soviet organizations that uh, those organizations, uh, they were uh, transferring their agenda from the top to the bottom and uh, they were pretty much tokens that didn't matter uh, and they just were passing the information and ensuring compliance at the bottom. This is not the argument that I'm trying to make. The argument that I'm trying to make is that uh, they are very important for the regime uh, and there is variation internally. Um, so let's proceed further. So let's unpack how elections worked in the Soviet Union because uh, on the one hand, we may think we know a lot about it, but on the other hand, there's actually uh, a lot missing. So first, um, we here probably all of us know that the Soviet elections were irrelevant. They were pretty much like um, a referendum where uh, there was one candidate and theoretically you can only vote for or against, but everyone voted for, and there were astonishing numbers that were <laughs> obviously uh, made up. Um, but uh, it should be noted that since the very beginning, the Soviet state understood representation not like we understand in, uh, democ in democracies. So uh, the Soviet state and the Bolsheviks understood elections not as competitive, not as a competitive procedure where the best candidate wins. They understood the elections as uh, the way to um, reflect how the Soviet society looks like and should look like. So originally, there would be other social groups that are not desirable for the Soviet states, so it would exclude it from their uh, Soviet councils, such as, for instance, um, uh, leaders of the church, or like ch church people, basically, um, or uh, different ethnic groups, etc. Um, later on, uh, the society became more homogenous uh, based on their um, pretty wild uh, democratic Soviet policies and um, the need to kind of police that disappeared. Um, but it still wanted to reflect different social groups that aspired to have as the union of uh, peasants and workers. Um, okay, so if they didn't care about their um, competitive election, why bother with this uh, nonsense at all? Why waste money on all those election campaigns, etc.? Uh, here comes uh, one um, piece uh, that I originally pointed to uh, when I presented my argument. So I think that uh, the Soviet state was on the one hand interested in this performative part uh, of reflecting how the society looks like and how it should look like. But on the other hand, it also had a very real uh, everyday needs that they had to deal with on the ground uh, at the municipal level. Um, and uh, this is where responsiveness comes into play because the Soviet state could not just ignore or oppress every single person uh, within uh, 
itself. And uh, I'm going to bring more information about responsiveness and what it actually means. So responsiveness is a very important concept for uh, democracies. It's a fundamental uh, idea that deputies uh, responding to uh, their constituency's needs because they want to be re-elected, they want to stay in the office, which is not why uh, deputies would be responsible uh, and uh, would be responsive in non-democracies, right? Because they do not face the threat of being non-elected. Uh, and responsiveness generally refers to the quality of a representative or deputy to react to their constituency's needs through learning and aggregating the information about their needs through in-person meetings or mail or calls and attempting to solve those problems. So um, what happens when elections are irrelevant, when uh, a deputy cannot be voted out of office? Um, there is a literature in political science that talks about it. Uh, there is a literature on competitive electoral authoritarian regimes and like more um, hardcore regimes like uh, in China. And they suggest that uh, the deputies, the representatives can be responsive because of partisan loyalty. They want to advance their uh, career. Uh, they um, also can be responsive because uh, of transparency in policy making because uh, it decreases uh, non-compliance among the citizens because the citizens know that the things are done uh, to serve their best uh, needs and interests, then they have more incentive to comply. And then uh, there's also an argument about the stakeholder, stakeholders uh, such as non-governmental organizations, which is again based mainly on their um, context of uh, China where uh, the state is uh, the only shareholder, but there are other stakeholders. Um, and um, there is also an argument about the solidarity with community. So the uh, deputies can be responsive to their community if they feel the connection, like identity-based connection or some other connection with their community. So you can reach the same beneficial effects as in democracies uh, based on those parameters. And uh, what I suggest is uh, that Soviet representation was not irrelevant at the municipal level because uh, there were a lot of everyday problems, everyday politics problems that the Soviet Union was facing. And uh, what the Soviet Union did differently was how they constructed responsiveness in the context of uh, gender. So they uh, weaponized gender to um, uh, facilitate the needs of the Soviet constituencies where uh, basically, um, for uh, the Soviet men, um, uh, it was constructed in one way, and for the ideal Soviet women, it was constructed in some other way. And um, here, where their idea of a good Soviet citizen uh, comes into play. So the Soviet Union, as we know, spent a lot of energy and efforts into constructing their uh, image of their ideal uh, Soviet man or woman. Uh, and this was reflected uh, in uh, various uh, literatures, in history, sociology, um, political science even, about the Homo Sinaiticus or uh, their ideal uh, Soviet men. Uh, and uh, there was also the idea of the perfect Soviet woman as well. Um, and I argue that the performance of Sovietness, uh, that ideal, uh, Soviet citizen was different from male and female representatives 
For men, it was mainly linked to their partisan loyalty. So it's not a surprising argument. You would observe the same things in China. But for women who did not experience the accessibility to uh, the partisan career, we know we don't see any women in Politburo or something like that. Um, they uh, were performing their uh, good Sovietness through their responsiveness to their communities. And I'm going to provide evidence uh, on that uh, in a second. So first, let me introduce you to my main data sources. Um, originally, I was intended to interview former Soviet representatives uh, to learn about their experience, but Russia started the invasion of Ukraine and it all didn't happen. And I started looking for alternative sources uh, that would be able to uh, provide answers to my questions. And one of those sources is the magazine, the Soviet magazine, uh, that was issued between um, 1957 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, that magazine deliberately targeted uh, Soviet representatives. Uh, and it was basically a manual to uh, show the Soviet deputies, especially the municipal ones, on how to manage their uh, deputies' duties. And it was a pretty broadly circulated magazine, uh, which was um, approaching almost a million of monthly copies. And um, each issue was a pretty thick uh, uh, magazine, about 114 pages, and uh, it was a monthly issue, so about uh, 42 uh, and a half uh, thousand pages in total. Um, and uh, the magazine itself contained really interesting sections such as a Q&A section with the readers tips on how to manage typical questions that come uh, from the constituencies, agendas that uh, their um, Soviet council should run, especially the municipal ones, legal provisions on, for instance, there would be a new law on how to divide land for agricultural purposes, uh, for dachas, and um, uh, there would be a legal explanation and how to consult your constituencies on um, uh, cultivating that land or the illegal construction of buildings or tips on um, uh, being in line for getting a car or a housing, things like that. And there would be just general uh, readers' letters that kind of try to address different problems. And the readers would be typically uh, the deputies. Uh, on top of that, and that's, uh, is, that is what particularly uh, of interest to me, was the discussion of women's issues and women's councils. So how those uh, agencies were relating to uh, their uh, councils themselves, Sovieti, uh, and uh, they also depicted different role models of an ideal uh, male and female deputy. And we don't know if those portraits were real or accurate, but they're interesting on their own because um, such a popular uh, magazine, uh, such a widely circulated magazine, chose to uh, show those portraits, display them. And uh, here's an example of the cover from 1972. And here how uh, it looks like uh, in the first uh, pages, so the content and like the main topic page. Um, and my other source of data is um, Ali Yershinska's collection. So who is Yershinska? Uh, Yershinska uh, was a journalist um, who was uh, one of the first whistleblowers 
about the Chernobyl's disaster, and uh, she was also the member of the Co Congress of People's Deputies, uh, the reformed uh, Supreme Soviet uh, organ, uh, and uh, she was from Ukraine, from Zhitomir, and later she became the advisor to the Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and um, recently, just in 2019, she submitted uh, her uh, collection there, um, 13 boxes uh, with exchange uh, with her constituencies and different Soviet agencies, as well as her newspaper clippings to the Hoover Institution. Uh, and I had a chance to work with this amazing collection. And that collection included really various types of documents. And I'm gonna show you some examples. So there would be um, letters uh, from her constituencies that would bring up some problem I chose one that is more readable. Some of them are very hard to read. Uh, then uh, they would attach the images of their struggles. For example, here is uh, the story of the Kukharets family uh, who had to leave in a shed and uh, the wife was complaining about having to leave in a shed at such age after being the participants uh, after fighting in World War II. Uh, and uh, what Yurashinska would typically do, she would uh, exchange uh, letters with the appropriate Soviet agency. So in this case, she sent a letter to Ispokom of the relevant district. And then she would uh, also attach, like it follows from their, uh, their evidence from, their, um, from her constituency, like the photograph, the letter, that, and would ask to return it afterwards. And then she would send the letter uh, to uh, their um, uh, to to the one who originally uh, applied with the complaint, and uh, this is an ideal case where I was able to locate each document to each other, but it was not organized like that. So it was just the random bunch of documents, and you can trace it uh, or attempt to trace it. So this is how Yershinsky's collection uh, looks like, and what I did with those uh, amazing sources, I uh, engaged into what's called uh, sample saturation. I uh, was uh, going through this data in the magazine and Yoshinska's collection for those documents and was trying to identify the patterns uh, and uh, collect the information until it starts repeating itself. For instance, uh, if there would be an issue of um, a phone, uh, landline phone provision, it would appear once, twice, and like I would look for it until the time when everything starts repeating itself as an issue. Um, and in terms of uh, analysis, I uh, engaged in historical analysis, and uh, this included inductive process tracing um, and uh, Congress testing with comparison of the official documents provision and what was actually done in the field, uh, case study and the counterfactual analysis. So what could have, done, uh, what could have been done instead of uh, what we observed as the implication. So here are the actual results. First, um, let me give you the evidence that uh, there was responsiveness uh, on the municipal level in the USSR because um, how, how do we know that any, anyone was responding? And uh, what was actually the difference between uh, the bureaucratic response and their um, deputies response. So uh, my main criteria for differentiating between uh, the bureaucratic response and deputies response is the public good allocation. So um, deputies deal 
with the question of uh, providing access to the public goods. And um, this uh, argument is uh, much more sensitive uh, when we apply it to uh, the developing world, uh, whereas in developed countries, it might appear more like um, why road provision is considered as like a contested issue or the issue of public goods allocation. And um, when we talk about the developing world, uh, poor states, uh, when they provide uh, access uh, to the essential public goods, uh, it is still uh, a question of contestation. So uh, the uh, famous uh, article by Charpadia and Duflo, Duflo is the Nobel Prize laureate, um, and uh, they basically looked at how road and water provision was accessible uh, in India. And um, this might appear as a bureaucratic issue if we look at it from the developed world perspective, but this is a very contested and very real uh, problem in the developing world. And uh, in the context where the country was not only in the process of developing itself, but also had the command economy, the provision of resources becomes particularly contested among different uh, political actors. And uh, the Soviet representatives, uh, when they exhibited responsiveness, uh, they um, could bring resources or information, access to that, uh, when it was not covering politically sensitive questions. That's when um, uh, their uh, contestation was brought in the equation, whether we are going to give resources to build the road in this village or that village, whether we're going to provide water in this village or that village. Um, so that relates to the concept of the everyday representation. Uh, so what was uh, among those everyday things that I'm conveying to you? Uh, first, uh, the constituencies, uh, the municipal constituencies and their needs included their uh, problems of infrastructure, water and sewage provision, transportation, sanitation, healthcare, food provision, access uh, to different types of goods, uh, housing, uh, distribution of land, and entertainment. Those are the main uh, topics that I observe in both uh, their uh, magazine, their Soviet Narodnych Deputatov magazine, and Yurshinskaya's collection. Uh, and uh, in the magazine, it is presented in the form of a fiction. Uh, for instance, it could be like um, a, a, a story that conveys a common problem, and then there would be a suggestion on how to resolve a common type of issue uh, among their constituencies. Um, and then um, it also would often encourage the deputies, the readers, the main readers, uh, to uh, come up with solutions uh, that are manageable on the ground. And uh, it also engages, um, the, the magazine also engaged with the question of responsibility. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the magazine has uh, the Q&A section and the letters uh, to them. And um, oftentimes their readers would bring up the question of the scope of deputies inquiry. So how much the deputy could address. And for instance, one of the letters that I read in there was from a woman who was very displeased that uh, the grocery store in her village was selling vodka at the time when uh, it was not allowed to sell it, and she was inquiring where, uh, whether she could um, uh, discourage them from selling vodka uh, uh, based on her deputy's uh, 
position uh, because um, their uh, seller's response is usually that they're trying to uh, plan, uh, make the plan uh, to sell vodka and she's standing on the way of the communist uh, development fulfill, fulfillment of the obligations and she was very displeased with that because everyone is drunk and not working <laughs> um, so this is <laughs> sorry is this under Gorbachev um, uh, that story is from the 70s so before Gorbachev oh, wow. okay. yeah yeah so that's why it's a very interesting <coughs> magazine you you have to go through a lot of very boring <laughs> stuff before you find something exciting yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and for instance, there would be question about who is uh, supposed to be engaging into a certain uh, organizational work, mass work, like uh, is it specifically secretary, chairman, or deputy? So uh, there was a lot of conversation of uh, who is dealing with what and like uh, how do we divide those responsibilities? Uh, and uh, with uh, the here's an example of um, an encouragement to do things ourselves. Uh, I'm going to read this quote. And why don't we take uh, over this matter ourselves? Tarasov asked. Tarasov is the deputy in the story. Let's pay the sidewalks with our own hands, plant trees and bushes. And if you need help from the executive committee of the council, then of course I will provide it. So um, there would be different narratives out there, the stories that would encourage people to do something. And after that, it would follow up with um, suggested resources. Um, so it would be the, the interesting combination of the propaganda sources with the manual on how to apply the propaganda. And uh, there would be also pages with uh, caricatures and funny stories, uh, poetry. Uh, here's an example of uh, over-bureaucratization, too many um, uh, references uh, to the District Security Council that the grandma Anisia had to provide, so she had to get on top of uh, all of the pile of these documents to <laughs> convince uh, their uh, local council. Or here is an example of uh, their consistent problem of alcoholism, <laughs> that, oh, we are celebrating too early, we shouldn't have done that. Or here's an example from the 80s, um, where the repair person uh, suggests that if you need to use the water in the faucet, then un uh, unplug it. It would start running. Um, and uh, the other um, uh, information, the other piece of information that was um, uh, coming into play with explaining this type of uh, uh, problems uh, is coming from Alyoshinska and. Um, Yershinska's collection enabled me to verify that those problems were not just made up by the Soviet propaganda, but those were the real problems that real people were suggesting. And because Yershinska was uh, not the member of the Communist Party, and she came into power after the Gorbachev's reforms, mm -hmm. and uh, she was popularly elected, and she was uh, basically, to some extent, the uh, um, opposition, because she was a whistleblower about the Chernobyl disaster in 1986, um, she uh, received the letters that were addressing the same type of issues. And the most interesting thing is that they were, although she was at the uh, federal, at the highest level of the Soviet legislature, she was receiving the same type of complaints that were uh, outlined as the municipal type of issues in the magazine. So um, 
uh, for instance, here's a quotation from her um, that uh, she received uh, receives 450, 500 complaints every month, and 90% are uh, housing-related complaints. And um, she also uh, mentioned several times that she gets the complaints uh, sent to the wrong address because uh, she is the higher uh, level representative and they should go to the lower level representatives. Um, and here's uh, the word cloud of the most common issues uh, based on my uh, detailed notes of uh, their version sketch collection. I made uh, the notes of about 10,000 words uh, and I was uh, basically coding what type of issues were uh, coming up. And housing, obviously, is a big issue. Uh, and just as an illustration, people would just send images, oh, here's a crack in my wall, what could I do? Uh, and this is like 13 boxes of uh, those types of complaints. Uh, and what uh, I, uh, I'm going to show further is uh, that the magazine uh, and the Soviet state uh, in general uh, was setting different expectations uh, for the uh, female and male Soviet deputies. Uh, and um, basically uh, for women, it was one standard associated with responsiveness mainly. And uh, I'm going to show you some uh, important main themes uh, that appeared in uh, their um, that magazine. So um, for women, uh, some of the main themes with the uh, uh, ideal type uh, female portraits were high ethics and morality. And uh, you see here uh, two uh, quotes from uh, different decades uh, where an ideal type uh, deputy was uh, described uh, as a special, uh, as a giving a special impression on the audience by her integrity, completeness, and high moral purity. And then uh, the other quote is from the 60s. The chairwoman of the village council, Antonina Ivanovna, is described as a moral tribune who can tell uh, something sensible to one person, shame the other, and put the third one in their place. Um, the other big part uh, for how uh, Soviet women were described in both uh, the magazine and some of the interviews that I managed to collect. I have about 10 interviews with the former Soviet representatives. Is a motive of honor. Uh, all of them mentioned that it was a very prestigious, a very honorable duty, pachotna abyazanist, uh, to uh, serve as a representative. So here are the two quotes from two of my different uh, um, interviewees. Uh, one served uh, in, um, in the Urals uh, at the top probably. Uh, the answer uh, has uh, so many different facets that I can think of. It is very useful on the one hand and it was very, uh, it was vulnerable on the other hand. Uh, it was scary and exciting to try something new. It was the answer to uh, how was this duty for her uh, to be a Soviet representative. And then uh, they also considered themselves as a role model for the rest of the Soviet society. Here's an answer from a woman who uh, served as a representative in Kazakhstan. For them, the Kazakh people, I was a flagship. They were all under my protection and I never let anyone offend them. When their life uh, stock from the collective farm was stolen by the Russian, uh, by the Soviet Russian authorities, 
um, uh, that respondent, that woman, was upset uh, because it was the plunder of the socialist property. Uh, and it kind of brings up very interesting motifs uh, of different levels of intersectionality because that respondent was uh, uh, and is uh, a Russian woman, but she was very upset with the Russian men who were stealing livestock and drinking uh, out there. So there is a lot to unpack and talk about here, but it's for their, uh, I, I'm showing that to explain the idea of honor and uh, their aspiration to be uh, the role model. Uh, However, it also was coming with the cost of uh, unlimited workload and the embrace of the workload, which definitely did not appear for men in any of the descriptions. So uh, I really think that this quote uh, encapsulates it pretty well. A young woman, Margarita Kiselova, is described as a deputy who goes to the districts and business streets of the executive committee of cost. Every business strip takes away her valuable working time. But as already noted, uh, Margarita Petrovna works perfectly. She often doubles or triples the production rate. Uh, production does not suffer any losses. And this would be the typical narrative for a woman. Uh, and um, there would be a lot of uh, stories about how they do uh, small uh, jobs that are basically the cogs in the Soviet machine. Uh, and here are some uh, examples of women <laughs> Uh, serving longer and not as prestigious jobs as men. Um, the secretary of the village executive committee, Lydia Alexeyevna, is from the locals and uh, has been on duty for 20 years. Um, and uh, again, below there's a story about Anastasia Nikolaevna, who was doing her job at the village councils for 30 years. And uh, this is not the case for the description of a ideal type uh, male. Soviet representative. Also, it's, um, I must note that the Soviet electoral statistic that was published in that magazine was very inconsistent. Sometimes it would be, uh, say, let's say 15 pages of text uh, with the scattered numbers throughout that. So they wouldn't publish like electoral statistics that it is easily to trace and compare over time. Uh, they would uh, publish one part of the data in um, in one electoral cycle, then they would publish the other part in another electoral cycle. So this table was not in the magazine. You wouldn't find it if you look at it. It was uh, the numbers scattered for the text. And uh, why I'm showing it, it's quite interesting that um, those are their um, uh, update rates, so incumbency. And uh, uh, as you can see, for the municipal level, uh, there are uh, new, um, deputies uh, that didn't serve before um, um, are much uh, less common uh, for, uh, for women. Um, so to some extent, it sort of shows uh, points in the direction that women uh, were preferred to stay longer at those municipal jobs. And uh, here are some uh, stories about the male representation. Um, men uh, in uh, the magazine were often portrayed as competent problem solvers that are affiliated with the Communist Party, and uh, they usually portrayed with us uh, very knowledgeable, with uh, a lot of experience, uh, and um, as someone who uh, is uh, can be like 
a good problem solver. Um, uh, however, um, men, unlike women in the magazine, are the only ones who appear to be uh, not responsive. So uh, I only found one case uh, where a woman was ignoring her deputy's issue in the magazine, so she was not showing up to the council meetings. Um, but for men, uh, it was very common to uh, not comply with Makaze, so those um, uh, collected promises based on their constituency's needs. And here are some illustrations. So here's a deputy that passes their uh, um, constituency's complaints uh, to their uh, trash bin right away <laughs> without stopping. Uh, here's uh, the deputy who is uh, on a, such a high level that he doesn't need to accept the complaints. Uh, here's another uh, illustration of their deputy's chair who uh, comes into his office and his secretary tells him, oh, here's your desk. And he uh, responds, oh, it's okay, I can stand. I won't be long here. Uh, so he doesn't want to spend a lot of time doing his job. <laughs> or uh, when there was a new decree issued uh, on the procedures regarding uh, proposals and complaints from the constituencies, uh, so this is like this new um, decree. Um, um, here's like a portrait of the typical deputy who doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to see, doesn't want to say anything, but he is going to be like challenged by this new provision. Like see no evil, hear no evil. Yeah, uh, and uh, to conclude, I'm just gonna show you the things that you might have expected to see when you think about Soviet um, representatives, because when you think about representation in the Soviet Union, we think about the talkings. So uh, people who don't matter, the yes men, the yes women, uh, and obviously that was part of the Soviet agenda. But uh, what I noticed um, was that it mainly started appearing uh, in their uh, second half of the 1970s, uh, and um, it was mainly targeting women who uh, were reduced to a portrait uh, with the short information about how much beef they collect or how many uh, cows they milked, uh, and the dairy um, stories, the, uh, the Soviet milkmaid who is a deputy is sort of um, a meme uh, that is pretty well known. Uh, here are some more examples of uh, their women talkings, uh, but the men talkings were also there. Uh, however, um, unlike women, their Communist Party membership was uh, much more on display. So, to conclude, uh, first of all, uh, so far there's no systematic analysis of uh, women's representation uh, that was done in the context of the Soviet Union and Soviet councils. And uh, my research aims to show the instrumental role of women in those Soviet councils and um, show the role of responsiveness uh, for um, their uh, Soviet councils and uh, for their uh, for how the Soviet Union um, considered uh, gendered representation. Uh, then this research also contributes to their um, debates in the literature about the role of women as representatives in non-democratic states. Um, it helps us to understand better understand how the authoritarian resilience works and um, what was uh, the degree of autonomy 
for their Soviet women um, uh, within uh, the existing rules. Furthermore, this research uh, also helped me to establish uh, some hypotheses about Putin's Russia and the utilization of women for the means of maintaining power, but this is not part of today's presentation. Um, and I'm happy to uh, answer your questions. And thank you so much for listening to me and for being here. Thank you.